Episode 2, Season 2, Black Stage is back. Black History Month is in full effect. And before we get started, I must say we are raising a Black History Month leadership fund. This fund is going to be investing in Black leaders all across the United States who are leading organizations on the front lines of social justice. So if you care anything about social impact, please, please, please go to theblackstage.org and invest whatever you possibly can uh, into our fund because that fund will be supporting some amazing leaders and organizations. So for today's episode, we're going to be talking to Ms. Jamira Burley, who's an American activist and administrator. Uh, Jamira previously in 2016 was a part of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Uh, Jamira was the National Deputy Millennial Vote Director, and she is now the Head of Youth Engagement and Skills at the Global Business Coalition for Education. And she's also at MIT uh, Media Lab uh, as a Director's Fellow. So Jamira is busy, but Jamira is someone who is creating change. She is someone who is starting conversations that are so desperately needed. And most importantly, she's creating a better tomorrow for the youth of today. And so I am so excited for you all to hear this dynamic conversation with Jamira. She is someone who makes you feel like you're the only person in the room when you talk to her. And so I know when you all listen to this conversation, you're going to feel the same exact way. So without further ado, Ms. Jamira Burley, this is The Black Stage. All right, and we are back. Uh, I am so excited to have with me an extraordinary guest on the Black Stage podcast, Jameer Burley. Uh, Jameer Burley is the head of youth, was it the head of youth engagement and skills for the Global Business Coalition for Education. And she's also an MIT Media Lab Director's Fellow and just an all around extraordinary, brilliant woman who is leading the fight for justice in every different way. You can currently catch her on Twitter where she is constantly going viral for sharing <laughs> the realness uh, that, that is needed uh, in today's society. Jameer, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. You know, we are, what? Um... How many days into the new year? 13 days into the new year. And I'm trying to continue to practice being honest when people ask me how I'm doing. But I'm actually doing really good today. So thank you that's for good. having me. That's good. I think that's super important. I think we, we've conditioned ourselves as a society to like, like obviously always say that we're good. And if we're not good, you just say, I'm not good today. But, you know, hopefully tomorrow is better. But I'm happy that you're good today. And I'm happy that you um, made time out of your busy schedule to speak with me. Um, there's so many things to talk to you about um, in just the the short time that this, this year has kind of like cycled through. But um, I want to start with you, uh, like I start every podcast and just kind of talk to you about your journey you are someone who has an amazing story um and you're someone who has overcome a lot to get to where you are today and I just would love to start with you know what got you from point a to point b how did you begin this journey uh, of justice if we if you will no that's a really great question and um <laughs> there's so many ways that I can I can go on it but I will say is that you know I grew up in West Philadelphia um, because when you're from Philly, you have to be very specific about what area. I grew up in West Philadelphia. Um, born and raised. Born and raised. My claim to fame is that I went to the same high school as Will Smith, years apart, but same high school. And um, I grew up in a community that was grappling with the aftermath of the drug epidemic and the war on crime. It was a community that, you know, lacked basic resources like um, supermarkets and health clinics and just a space and place for Black folks to feel like they um, had some level or potential to actually reach their full potential. And 
I grew up very much believing that the circumstances of my life, whether it was, you know, facing homelessness, facing um, high levels of poverty, watching relatives um, move in and out of the criminal justice system, or even um, to my brother's life, um, losing my brother at the age of when he was 20 years old. I just assumed everyone experienced those realities. Um, and it took the murder of my brother Andre in 2005 to make me realize that um, there was something deeply wrong within our community um, and that it wasn't just enough to say that these things are happening to everyone without us questioning why are these things happening to everyone? And what about our communities, our systems that are enabling for these communities to exist? And so, you know, whether it was both of my parents being incarcerated or losing a brother to violence, I started to realize that there was a path for me to be at the table and to really help to provide texture to decision makers on what solutions could look like for communities of color that reimagined safety, that reimagined opportunity, that reimagined justice. And um, much of that work started off um, implementing anti-violence programs in my high school and across the city. And through that, I realized that, you know, gun violence and criminal justice reform were oftentimes the public face to poverty, the public face to injustices, the public face to racial inequality. Um, and so for the last 17 years, it's just been about um, showing up in different ways, but doing the same exact work, right? Fighting for the same exact marginalized communities, whether it's with corporations, whether it's with nonprofits, or whether it's with government agencies. Um, it's kind of where I've kind of put my fork in the road of saying, I'm, I'm going to be here for the long haul. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, you, you mentioned your brother. Um, and first of all, I want to say, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, my continued uh, condolences. I, we always have like these almost catalysts in our lives for for people who I speak with who are doing incredible work uh, around justice. Do you do you feel that in some ways um, the work that you that you do and what you stand for uh, represents um, the failures of of systems of oppression uh, that might have impacted your brother in some way? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, my brother. And I, and I should give a little backstory. My brother Andre was uh, two years older than me, and him, like many of my older brothers, felt a deep responsibility to fill in the gaps to where my family couldn't or, or didn't fill those gaps in. So whether it's providing um, additional money to buy food, whether it was paying for our books and our clothes to go to, to school, um, they took up that mantle at a very young age. And you know, over the last 15, 17 years, I've now seen that so many other young people have been forced to become adults too early. Um, and so as I've gone throughout this work, I realized that the school system felt him, you know, our society felt him. Um, and um, people who threw him away and didn't think that he was worthy of opportunities to be better, do better. But also, I think, you know, a lot of the adults outside of my family felt him and us by not asking questions, right? There were days, I think my freshman year of high school, I missed like 76 days of school. And not once did anyone question why I did it, they just assumed that it was me being a disruptive student, not recognizing that I actually spent most of my morning trying to get my little brothers and sisters to school. Um, so it's definitely institutions that are at the heart of it, but it's also people, you know, I feel like we've gotten so far away from seeing someone down the street as a part of our community, um, to caring about the children in our neighborhood. Um, there's nothing I could do when I was like, um, there's nothing that my mother or my grandmother could do in their neighborhood without someone, as we call it, snitching on them or letting their parents know. And I feel like we don't even know our neighbors anymore. So they're, yeah. we're lacking the basic, I think, um, human um, connection that is so required for how we move throughout the world and fight for other people. Mm -hmm. 
the when I think about you know systems, you know, a lot of times, you know, we start we start with education. Um, we start with having conversations uh, with education uh, education facilitators in, in various different ways. So whether that's on the policy level, whether that's a school teacher, um, and and what needs to change uh, in education. And I'm thinking specific specifically around your work. Um, not to fast forward too much here, but thinking of, around like what you have continuously done to uh, fight for youth and and to be the voice for this, this up, up and coming generation. Um, there are a lot of questions with this generation. Um, we're talking about kids who have lived through 9-11, that have lived through a Bush era, that have lived through Katrina, um, you know, economic downturn, the first black president, now a global pandemic in Trump. Right. Um, and millennials need a break. <laughs> I mean, you know, well, I'm talking about just Gen Z. I'm talking about Gen Z, but yes, millennials too need a break. We definitely need a break. I'm exhausted. Um, but you know, we're 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 talking about these young folks who are coming up in just a tumultuous era of of so much uncertainty, and then you have the internet. In, in technology, what is some of the things that you're seeing now, Jamira, that um, are impacting young people in a way that you know society isn't talking about uh, as it pertains to uh, to systems of oppression? Um, well, two things I will say, and they're and they're sort of connected. The first thing I will say is, you know, in this in this world, we are dealing with the largest youth population the world has ever seen. We're dealing with 1.8 billion young people who are growing up in very dire situations around the world and are grappling with everything from nationalism to child marriage to child soldiers, whether we're talking about on the south side of Chicago or in villages in Sudan. And the, the vast majority of policymakers are not addressing the very real concern that we might lose an entire generation because of our inability to care about what needs to happen to pave a way for them to be successful. One of those being is education, right? I'm not a, a believer that education is the end-all be-all, but without any form of education, there's no way you can be successful in this world. Um, whether that's just reading prescriptions, whether that's asking the right questions, whether that's being able to find a job. Um, and what we know is that the jobs for the future, well, actually what I will say is that, you know, what we know about traditional education is that um, if you look at the last 10 years, right, we've had 10 different iPhones, or maybe is it close to 14 now? We've had, I I can't keep we've had multiple iPhones, but if you look about our education system in the last 100 years, nothing has changed. And what does that mean, right? So we are moving into a generation of automation and robotics where entire industries will be will transform, right? And, and jobs will be depleted from, that, from those industries and they'll be replaced by other ones. But we have an entire generation that is not able to answer that call to fill those jobs. And that's going to mean continuation of large-scale poverty around the world, and the wealth gap is going to continue to widen. In that same vein, technology is also have been seen as a resource for us because we've been able to connect with folks not only in our community, but across the border, right? Whether we're talking about protests, whether we're talking about entertainment or learning. And what I've seen, particularly with young people, is a deep sense of wanting to belong. Um, while also grappling with the ideology that they have to perform on social media in order to be popular in life. And I think that is truly screwing up their ecosystem of how they show up in the world. Um, and it's, I think it's only going to continue to show very bad signs for how their inability to interact and have holistic conversations that isn't performative or that isn't about um, appearing to be some sort of person, um, some sort of personal persona that they're not. It, it's so you may you well first of all you dropped a couple of gems uh, in that and and the thing that I, I want to highlight is that you know you you mentioned 
disparities and gaps uh, in, with the education system and the technology system. And I think that, that that's something that needs to be said, right? You just mentioned literally how there have been all these upgrades with iPhones, but yet we're still sitting here teaching our kids Shakespeare and English and, and all. And English is good, it's important, but I'm just saying like there is there is these tactical things that are needed to be taught in our schools that kids just aren't getting in a public school system or any school system for that matter um, to be able to kind of like level the playing field so that everything isn't automated. That's one thing. But the other thing that I want to say is that you mentioned um, the connection piece. Um, there is something that has been happening in the last 10 years where we are a more connected world, but I don't know if that's for the better or for the good. And, you know, one thing you also said is the performative piece around like, you know, we post these pictures of us smiling, but are we really happy? We want a lot of likes. Is that like, are those likes validation for our young people and for all of our people, really, because everybody seems to want to like nowadays. Um, and a lot of of them. Um, do you find when we are having conversations around like, for example, Black Lives Matter, and we're talking about like what people, for example, did last summer in the year of 2020 um, to really like, you know, fight for justice for all Black people, but in particular, those that were showcased on television, like the Breonna Taylors, like the George Floyds. Um, do you believe that there can become an oversaturation of trauma and pain that can create some type of scar tissue um, for young people um, moving forward in our society when you are consistently and constantly seeing the pain and the poverty and the hurt and the, and the injustice that is uh, to be um, Black in, in this country specifically. Yeah, I think we've gotten to a really weird moment within our, our nation's history um, and within the human um, society. The fact that we have to have video evidence to support what we all know to be true, right? We know the police are killing Black folks. We know that folks are racist and are stopping folks in random ways to assert their, their supremacy over them. But yet we constantly have to be forced to play these videos, to have video evidence in order for people to believe these things are true. And I think it's really traumatizing. I tell people all the time, like, to share that is actually traumatizing the very communities that you're trying to protect. Um, at the same time, we're constantly asking young people to, to tokenize their experience, right? To provide trauma porn in order for us to find sympathy with folks um, to understand what their story is going. I mean, I had that same, oftentimes that same problem when I was younger and I didn't understand how to navigate traditional institutions of power who brought me into spaces just to share my story without actually addressing the root causes, right? What I say is that they would bring me into spaces asking me to share my story for the purpose of sympathy and not for the purpose um, of actually addressing the, the issues that led me to being who I am today. Mm -hmm. And so I think we constantly do that with young people without providing them any sort of mental health, any sort of resources. And we do that in very fancy places and spaces, and then we send them back to the homes and the communities that they are, are drowning in. Um, and so I do think that there's a level of, are we gonna become sensitized by the trauma porn that we're forced to see online as a way to raise awareness for the issues that are plaguing our communities? While at the same time, what is gonna be the mental repercussions of forcing young people to constantly share their trauma as yeah. a way to uplift their stories? And why are they getting that trauma? Why, why, are these, why, are these, why are these different things happening to them on a regular basis that by the time you 
reach 18 years old, you have this full story of trauma. Like what, what's happening in these communities and what's happening um, in the day-to-day lives of young people. And, and, and I, I think about a lot, you know, I'm someone who like loves history and loves to compare and contrast, uh, you know, what was happening then. And I think of like Rodney King Jamira um, mm. and how that one video created this huge uproar, but now it feels like we're having Rodney King every day. Um, it is happening every single day, every moment. There's like these these things, whether it's like you know Karens uh, or, or or whatever it whatever it is. Um, it, it's something happening, and you know I, I worry that there's going to be a level of of overwhelming um, that is going to create some type of stagnation um, with with young people. I fully agree. Yeah. Yeah. Oh goodness, the things we worry about. Uh, no. <laughs> the things that we worry about. And it's like how you know, and it's so and it's so many solutionists out there who like this is what we need to do. This is what the data says. This is what we what we how we need to move. But it's like the powers that be that you know you keep pre- you keep pressing against, um, don't allow those things to happen. I, I wanna ask you in really kind of thinking about like, you know, the cultural relevance of it all. Um, we are again now in 2021. Um, we just witnessed um um, a domestic terror attack um, on te- on national television live um, against the, the U.S. Capitol and, and U.S. Uh, appointed officials. I, I would love to get your uh, take on that. Uh, and I would love to kind of like expand that into kind of like, where do we go from here? Well, that was a hot mess of seeing, um, you know, Doug Dynasty make his way to the <laughs> Capitol. It was so disturbing. And and part of me watching it, to be absolutely honest, I didn't think, I couldn't process it in that moment because I was absolutely so confused by the level of just incompetence, the level of incompetence. And also, I'm, I'm, I'm also baffled by, like, this is the hill you want to die on is Donald Trump's hill. Like, the most un- incompetent president that we've ever had at least in modern times, right? Who can barely tie his shoes without tripping over. And it, it, it baffled me. Um, at the same time, it was ex- what we are now finding in the days after is just, it's scary to think about the level of violence that they were willing to insert in order to save, not this country, but to save whiteness. Mm. And it's a reminder that whiteness is very much a disease, a disease to the point where people who are living in poverty, white people who are living in poverty, who can barely keep the lights on, sees Donald Trump as their savior, even though he has done nothing to support them, nothing to enable for them to be successful. Um, and so it, it, it was it was baffling, and it's even more baffling now watching elected officials not fully grasp how close we came to our, cover, our government being overthrown by a fascist individual who couldn't take losing um, an election that I, I think that if he just done a handful of basic things, could have easily won. Um, and so it's very nerve wracking to me to think that, you know, that not that the, the, those folks did what they did, but that our government wasn't prepared to handle the repercussions of that moment and still may not be prepared. Um, I can only imagine what folks around the world are thinking, especially our, our enemies, right? Yeah. Um, thinking just I mean, it was, they were able to do it so easily, Jamira. They were oh, able it was to, so easy. it literally was just like, it was like me, it was like me going to a neighbor's house, like walking up this, you know, just literally walking on it. It, it, it. I was like, what is, is this? You know, I it, it, I mean, I'm not trying to make a joke of it all, but you know, people on Twitter were saying like, you know, we know clubs 
we know clubs in New York City that have higher security and it's harder for us to get in than the way that those folks just walked into uh, the Capitol. Now, I'm not sitting here in, in discrediting the, the, the Capitol Police that were that the, the, the Capitol Police that were trying. Let's let's be clear on the ones who were trying to, to block, um, you know, these protests or not protests, these these terrorists from coming into the Capitol. But it, it's just I think that it really sends a global message about who America is. And and I think that there's been this consistent facade about what America is and what America stands for and who we are and how big and bad we are. Um, but I'm, I'm really concerned. I mean, I'm concerned for our country and like the direction in which we're going, because this is not going to be any it's not going to be all sunshine and rain, rainbows um, in February. You know, it, it's not you know, we're not going to be dancing in the streets, but also like how does the global uh, environment uh, or community understand America moving forward? Mm hmm. No, I fully agree. It's <laughs> we have a lot of things to fix and it's not going to happen overnight, but it requires all of us to be honest about where we, where we're coming from and where we have to go. Yeah. Do, do you think that there was a uh, stark difference between the treatment of the the, the domestic terrorists. I mean, I got to ask you this question, Jameer. It's a, it's a, it's an interview conversation. Yeah. I mean, I know your answer, but I got to ask it to you. But do you think that there was a difference with the treatment of the, the, the domestic terrorists and the Black Lives Matter protesters of summer 2020 and how they were treated by police and how they were received by the media? Um, yeah, and I, and I can say this as someone who participated in the protests of 2020 um, that happened in New York, um, where we got, you know, trapped on the bridge where folks were thrown across um, boulders, <laughs> where police incited violence, um, whether it was shoving folks, whether it was um, screaming at folks, it was it was a completely different. Um, and this is also coming from someone who was in Baton Rouge after Baton Rouge and Baltimore after Freddie Gray, um, and just watching police officers look for ways to you know insinuate violence with black protesters. And all we were doing was asking them to stop killing us, right? Versus these protesters are saying. We want to take over the government because we don't believe um, a diverse set of voters across this country should decide the direction of the, the country versus it should be us as white people who decide the direction of this, this country. And so I do think that we have a, a, a real conversation, a real reckoning moment in this country where, you know, for months we have said defund the police and folks have said that seems um, extreme. But why is it extreme when we see police officers not even willing to do their job in the face of a government being overthrown? And so that should give us more pause to why the police should be defunded um, and create something that is actually going to keep us our, our community safe. And when you say defunded, do you say defund the entire policing system or do you say allocate police some police dollars into reinvesting into the community? I'm a mixture of both. You know, we know that police is very rooted in um, slavery, right? Um, slave patrols. So the very ideology of how the police came to be is rooted in racism. Do I not? Do I think that we're going to um, that is smart for us to have no form of law enforcement long term? No, because we know that at least one percent of police jobs is actually solving crime, right? Is solving a murder, a robbery, something related to an actual crime. Um, and I and we can use crime very loosely, <laughs> right? Laws, but the vast majority of police work is actually things that they were never trained to do to handle domestic disputes oftentimes that do not result in violence or to manage folks who are dealing with a mental illness. Um, we've seen them at least actually use deadly force in those instances 
or to deal with just a dispute between neighbors that did not have to turn violent until police arrived and made things even more um, crazy. So I would say for the vast majority of their job, which is about 90%, that money should be allocated to additional programs to ensure that we are um, actually talking about healing and reconciliation in a real way. Prime example, we didn't have ambulance until until the um, the early 1900s, right? Because black folks saw that that was something that needed to fill. And, and then the first ambulance um, group was actually a group of black folks from the community, nurses and doctors. I say all of that to say before that police were actually supposed to come to folks home and, and transform and uh, transfer them to the hospital. But the reason why um, ambulance were developed is because police were not doing that in black communities. Mm. And so the same thing applies here. Police are not doing their job adequately to all communities. And they're not doing their job for the things that they um, were never trained to do or never responsible for doing. So we need to supplement police with additional resources and services that are actually um, crime crime reducing versus um, versus intensifying crime in communities. Mm. I, that's actually a perfect segue into the the conversation that I really really want to have with you uh, during this time. Is I want to talk to you about Kamala Harris. Um, I, I'm interested. I know that you last year had an interview with her along with some additional colleagues. Um, but I, I really want to talk to you about Kamala Harris because Kamala Harris just at, in this moment in time, she means so much to so many people. Um, and then there are people uh, that have a lot to say about her um, in, 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 in various different ways. And so when we think about the first woman the, the first African-American VP, the first uh, South Asian VP, the first of many things, um, you know, what, what do you think um, in this moment in time is going to be, is going to be needed for Kamala Harris to lead the charge in, in, in her respective right, uh, as well as like, what do you believe that her legacy will ultimately be as, you know, we, we think about the first woman, the first African-American, first South Asian VP? Um, it's going to be hard. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be hard because very, what I will say is that, you know, the criticism that um, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, and I think is, um, is facing, is nowhere near the criticism that Barack Obama um, phase, even right. though she is more qualified than when he became president, and she's actually more progressive than when he was when he became president, and is more progressive than he was when he left office. Mm. So I say all of that to say, is she perfect in every way? No. But oftentimes, Black folks who are thrown into institutions that are inherently racism, racist, or actually oftentimes do more harm than good. And that's something we all have to grapple with. There's things that I'm constantly re-examining in my own career. At the same time, I think what's really important for um, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is to not conform, right? Not conform the traditional ways of politics, particularly that has been designed by white men, for white men, for white communities. Um, it's really important for her to live within her truth, her identity, and to reconcile that the, the very office that she now holds has done harm to the communities that she comes from and is fighting for. Um, and her responsibility, I think, is to continue to surround herself with not just people of color, but people of color who actually come from um, communities that are grappling with those issues um, and, bridge, and bridging the gap between, you know, politics and practice, how things are actually being practiced in communities. I do think that, you know, she is going to, I have, I, ironically enough, I actually am not nervous for what she can do as for what she can do based on what she wants to do. I'm more nervous for who 
in spaces and places are going to try to stifle her because she's, mm-hmm. a black woman, she's a black woman and how are, are we as a community continue to uplift her and support her while also holding her accountable to do more yeah no I, I it's interesting because like when you said all that you said I was just like it's so true right like she's so she's so much more progressive than when Barack first started she has so many different accolades like I mean the list of Mm -hmm. things that she has been able to accomplish and if you really kind of peel back the onion when you hear the criticisms about her it's just like what's this the way they're saying it was or or did she really put parents in jail for not taking their kids to school to school or or like I mean it's just like it's just so many different things um that people just don't seem to actually do their homework they just look at like clickbait and they just you know tackle it but I also believe that it's because she is a black woman and because she is a a leader um and because she is unapologetic I'm a Howard University graduate so like you know she's she she has put Howard on a map and on the map in such a way and HBCUs on the map really um in such a way that we've never seen before never seen before and so, you know, every time I see her on that little Skype video or whatever she's on, when she's telling the good word, it's like Howard is in the background. <laughs> she's on verses with Monica and Brandy with her Howard sweatshirt on. I mean, like, there's just things about her that, like, you know, you would have never seen 12 years ago. But I also don't want to knock what Brock and Michelle um, did because they were so perfect and because they played the game so well. Um, Kamala can come in in a way that she might have not been able to 12 years ago. Uh, And I always say, um, I always give Gwen Eiffel her flowers for this. She was on, um, what's that show? David Letterman when he was still on on TV. And he had said, well, who do you think is going to be the next Barack Obama? You know, who's going to be the next Barack Obama? And she said Kamala Harris 10, 12 years ago. And I was just like, you know, it's because she has been so steady in her path. But I do question, I do have a question for you, Jamira. Do you believe that she's going to be able to withstand it all? Um, She is in, in, we are in a a very divided nation. We've always been a a very divided nation, but I think that we are heightened because of the pandemic and because of the uh, craziness that has been the last four years. Do you believe that she is going to be able to find success uh, in these next four years for herself and and build on top of her legacy? Um, One, I think if anyone is going to find success in this moment, it's going to be a Black woman. (laughs) Two, I think, you know, her success is in twofold. It's in whether or not she wants to do, go go out of the norm and do what's in the best interest of the community versus the best interest of the political moment um, of the Democratic Party, right? Like the Democratic Party oftentimes likes to play the middle ground to appear to appeal to so many more people. But the problem is it's actually putting those who are the most vulnerable, the most and at the margins at risk. That being said, her success isn't just a success of hers alone. It also requires all of us to play our part. Um, meaning showing up for our, our local elections. It means elevating the issues that we care about. It means forcing her to be better. Um, that's what we did, unfortunately, towards the latter part of Barack Obama's um, second term. We should have been doing it throughout his entire eight years. But because of that, we got him closer and closer to realizing that the institutions he has helped uphold for so long are actually trash. Um, so the same thing has to be done with Kamala Harris. It's like, yes, support her but also hold her accountable in a way that is not disrespectful, that in a way that doesn't create space for her to grow and change her opinion, because that's the whole purpose of politics is to ensure that we're sharing information and data and stories to change someone's mind. And when they do change their mind, not use it as a moment to ridicule them or saying that they're flip-flopping. So I would say, I think she's up for the challenge, but the question is, are we up for the challenge to support her while also, you know, 
um, supporting other folks around the country who are running for office who can be put in positions of power to also support legislation she is enabled um, hopefully one day as president can sign into law. You said president. You know, just putting it out there. <laughs> so, you, so you want, so we can have this exclusive right now. You, you're saying that you, Jameer Burley wants Kamala Harris to run for president uh, in four years. Um, I kind of think that's probably going to happen less than that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey. Well, well, not a conversation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, look, I, I just want to make sure that I can archive it here that you said it first on, on Black Stage Podcast. Yes, that's great. Yes. That's great. Okay. will be the next president, will be the, the first Black female Native, I mean, Indian American president. Jamaican American, Indian American, African American president. Unapologetic, it, unapologetic. Un, unapologetically everything <laughs> president. <laughs> exactly. Um, you mentioned black women. Um, and I, I really would like to kind of dive into just black women this moment um, consistently and constantly in our history. Uh, black women um, are saving the world, it seems like. Um, and you, and it's not that you all have it before, uh, but you're being recognized for it. Um, when you have like, a, the, to pivot back really quickly, the vice president, president elect saying like, it's black women who literally have gotten us here. It's black women who are doing the work, the heavy lifting. Um, what does this moment mean for black women, just in general, not just Kamala, but like, what is this moment in general? Like when we look at Georgia, when we're looking at um, this presidential election that we just had, when we're looking at the, the calls for justice, when we're thinking about Breonna Taylor, Jamira, like what does this moment mean for black women and how do black women continue to mobilize and showcase their, their power in a way that uh, gets the action that is needed in response? That's a great question. And what I would say is that, you know, there's no Kamala without Stacey. There's no Stacey without so many other Black women who answered the call of duty to do the work locally, um, statewide, and nationally, um, and oftentimes internationally, right? This is a sisterhood of the traveling um, pants. Um, <laughs> we're pantsuits, the traveling pantsuits. Traveling <laughs> pantsuits, you know, with the, the individuals and oftentimes with the doobies. But we are, I think what's interesting about Black women is that we're never one to look at just like, how do we, how do we rise through the ranks? How do we become successful? We're constantly think our, thinking about our community and future generations. And I think that's what makes us unique. Um, and I think what's happening with Kamala, but not just with Kamala, but also with Black women being the very base of the Democratic Party um, and leading the organizing in communities um, shows that you know, what we've all known to be true for so long, that when you create space for Black women to lead, they will be successful. When you open doors, when you give them dollars to be able to make those investments, those investments will, will have large, um, large return on investments, you know, will have, um, will complete their KPIs. And so I'm honored to be alive in this moment and, and knowing so many of the Black women who have sacrificed relationships, who have sacrificed vacations, who have sacrificed promotions, who have sacrificed, you know, just being healthy because they knew that what they were fighting for was so much bigger than themselves. Um, and so I think what I hope to look forward to in the future is Black women also um, not just being honored and uplifted for what they're doing in communities, but also um, people are creating space for them to find healing and joy while also doing the work. Mm. That was brilliant. We all yeah, need a little bit of joy. We do need a little bit of joy because when we have these conversations, it's always it's always looking at the negative. But what I tell people, you know, I think about um, I think about uh, uh, 
was it January 6th. And, you know, that morning everyone was like, Queen Stacy! And, and super excited that, you know, Georgia had, you know, completely flipped blue because of this Black woman who literally did the work and so many others on the ground um, had did the work to kind of get, um, get, get the state to this point. Uh, and then later you have the, the white supremacists, you know, storming the Capitol. And I said, you know, this is the perfect example of the black experience where you can literally have joy and pain neck and neck, but that has been our story. You know, that has been our story. I, I tell people all the time, I said, do you not think that pe the people who were enslaved 200, 300, 400 years ago did not find joy in so much pain? And I, and I hope um, in, a, in, a, in a future world, in a black future, uh, which is being popular, popularly used these days, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, that, that, that pain, that suffering, that turmoil um, is, is no longer, and that we can really kind of center joy uh, consistently and constantly. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I, I agree. And I, I really love the phrasing of black futures, actually. I've been in so many conversations with folks because I think Oftentimes, the solutions we look at or we've been told to grapple with um, fit into the confines of institutions that have never been set up to, to help us, right? They oftentimes have been weaponized against us. But the idea and the concept behind Black Futures is thinking beyond those borders or those institutions to dream of a world beyond our own imagination. Um, and it's hard, right? It's hard for when I say dismantle the police and, you know, abolish the police for oftentimes for folks to be able to imagine a world without it recognize that we have never, we haven't always had it. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that this is a, a new space for all of us to be in to, you know, reimagine a world in which, you know, Black liberation has to be at the center of change in order for anyone to fully have access to liberation in this country. Because even white folks, right, like racism is a disease, um, whiteness is a disease, and it's not only limiting the upper mobility of Black folks, but it also limiting, limiting the upper mobility of the vast majority of white folks who are poor and underrepresented and not getting the resources that they need, but they've been conditioned to believe that their race is superior despite, despite the history of what we know to be true. Good Lord. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have so much to say about that, but we'll, we'll go, we'll go down a, a windy road and I, I mm -hmm. want to make sure that, uh, that we 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 maximize this time together as much as possible, and and I, I guess I'll, I I want to close with this, Jamira. You know, in in season one of Black Stage, you know, one of the things that I ask many guests is, what is your hope for the future? Um, what is your hope for Black people uh, in the future? Um, and I want to close, um, in, in particularly because I I know your story and I know how how much you've triumphed in your life if you were to to uh look back and and give advice to little jamira little jamira who didn't know all the things that you know now uh what would you tell her uh it, to make that road a little bit easier for her to be able to get to where you're at now a little bit quicker <laughs> Um, I actually tweeted something about it earlier. Um, you know, I think I spent most of my life believing that my job was to save people, um, was to save communities, was to save individuals. Um, and along the way, I got bruised and I got disillusioned with the process. When now I'm starting to realize that my job isn't to save people. My job is to dismantle, to reform systems and institutions that have been used as barriers to those people saving themselves. So I would have told myself um, to, you know, focus on, look beyond the individual, look beyond the community to recognize that 
um, there are things at play that are larger than us um, and that the work requires us to, you know, push up against the system. I would also tell myself to find joy in the pain, um, not to, not to like, you know, salivate over the pain, but really as we are doing this work, it's hard for us to make time for ourselves and make time for the things that are important. So I would reminded myself to, you know, it's okay to take time off. It's okay to explore and, and build relationships and, um, you know, take time for myself and not feel guilty. But when you grow up in a world in which you've lost loved ones, you oftentimes grapple with survivor guilt. And so I would have told myself that um, there's no, there's no space in this work for survival, for, for survival guilt versus just doing the work that honors the people that you've lost. Mm. Jamira Burley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm super excited. Hopefully folks are able to gain something from this. They're going to gain a lot because I just gained a lot. So I can't wait for this to, uh, to air. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.